Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, and particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned had described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Sydney Gangland Wars. The gang wars that shook a city. The mood was very tense uh, within the underworld at the time. There was other known criminals being gunned down uh, in the street. Once with a small calibre handgun and once with a heavy duty shotgun that takes off part of his face and head. Three gangs, equally cunning, equally deadly, waged war on each other for control of the lucrative underworld. Sydney police are hunting the underworld assassins of 49-year-old Barry Croft. The shooting happened just before 7 o'clock in the midst of late-night shops. There's many areas he could have been taken, but the underworld liked to do it in the the open streets. Barry McCann's bullet-riddled body was discovered at 6.30 this morning by a council cleaner. This was a professional hit. Police have found more than 20 spent cartridges. The body of Sally Ann Huxtap was fished out of a pond at Centennial Park today. Michael Daniel Chubb had just returned from buying fish and chips for lunch when the killer struck. Now, the Sydney Gangland War, or simply known as the Gang Wars, were a series of murders and killings of several known criminal figures and their associates that took place in Sydney, Australia during the 1980s. A vast majority of the murders were seen as retributive killings, attempts to control Sydney's drug trade, and expansion of criminal territory. A significant number of murders that took place during the Sydney Gangland War went unsolved, mainly due to corrupt police and their association with members of the Sydney underworld. Now we get into the background of this case. Organised crime in Sydney can be traced back to the Razor Gangs of the 1920s and 1930s. By the 1950s, the Sydney gangland scene started to become more organised, with various criminal figures controlling illegal casinos, brothels, SP bookmaking and nightclubs across Greater Sydney, with protection provided by corrupt police. Between 1950 and 1968, rival criminals became involved in a series of violent confrontations resulting in various public shootings. One such confrontation occurred when 45-year-old former boxer and standover man William Bobby Lee was shot at the Zigfield Club in King's Cross in the early hours of the 30th of May 1951 by rival standover man Chow Hayes, also sometimes billed as Australia's first gangster. Lee and Hayes were involved in a feud over an assault of an associate of Lee. The feud escalated on the 1st of May 1951 when a gunman, presumably sent by Lee, shot dead Hayes' nephew and young boxer Dennis Danny Simmons in a case of mistaken identity. 
identity. On the afternoon of the 8th of June 1956, 27-year-old standover man and thief John Joey Manners was shot three times after leaving the Australian Hotel in the Rocks. It was alleged that Manners was killed by rival criminal George Joseph Hackett over a dispute of the proceeds of a robbery. Hackett was charged with Manners' murder on the 25th of October 1956, but was acquitted after a key witness, Keith Craig, failed to appear at Hackett's trial. Three years after his acquittal on the 27th of July 1959, Hackett was shot and killed before being dumped from a car on Ellswick Street in the inner city area of Leichhardt. On the 9th of July 1963, standover man Robert Prettyboy Walker was shot to death in what the media considered as the first murder committed with a machine gun. It was alleged that Walker's murder was committed by rival standover man Lenny McPherson and his associate and hitman Stan the Man Smith in retribution for Walker shooting and wounding Smith during a raid on Walker's home days earlier. The murder of Walker occurred on the night of Lenny McPherson's wedding to his second wife. It was theorised that McPherson and Smith quietly slipped away from McPherson's wedding reception and drove a stolen car to the inner eastern suburbs of Randwick. McPherson and Smith spotted Walker coming out of a house and as Walker was walking down the street, Smith and McPherson pulled alongside Walker in their car and shot Walker with an Owen submachine gun, killing him instantly and driving away from the scene. After killing Walker, it was alleged that McPherson and Smith dumped the car a mile from the scene, disposed of the weapon and changed into a different set of clothes before getting into McPherson's own car, driving back to McPherson's wedding reception and slipping in unnoticed. Pretty Boy Walker was another bludger, and he'd commenced basically trying to take over some of Len McPherson's brothel territory. Walker had bashed Stan for assaulting a prostitute. Some days later, Stan went to Walker's house to sort him out. But Walker had a gun and opened fire, wounding Stan in the chest. Retribution would be swift. And Len McPherson took the opportunity of his marriage to his second wife, used that as an alibi so he and Stan Smith could go and pursue pretty boy Walker and kill him. Len McPherson goes through the ceremony, gets married, says to the wife, sorry darling, I've just got to duck out for a few minutes, got a bit of business on. Me and Stan Smith go to where they believe Walker was. They proceed down Allison Road, Randwick, and there's pretty boy Walker walking down the street. McPherson's ready for him, and he sticks a machine gun out the window and blows him away. The fact that Detective Ray Kelly was the lead investigator meant that Lenny was never in the frame, as attested by Roger Rogerson. I was uh, sent out to Randwick to work on the murder of a guy named uh, Pretty Boy Robert Walker. We were told, as the Detective Inspector Kelly would be getting the information from Lenny, and for some reason that information didn't materialise. And to this day, the crime is still unsolved. I was a very junior bloke. Uh, as I said, um, these guys were uh, inspectors and, and senior sergeants, and, uh, and, uh, and it wasn't for me to tell them what to do, but it was just an experience for me to to watch the way they worked and, uh, and I gained valuable experience from it. 
As the 1960s continued, more violent public murders continued to take place in the early hours on the 10th of February 1964. For example, 54-year-old standover man and Greyhound trainer Charles Greyhound Burke was shot 20 times with a high-powered rifle on the front lawn of his home in Randwick. Burke was reportedly involved in a feud with Lee McPherson over providing protection for a new illegal Baccarat club and was reported to be encroaching on McPherson's protection rackets in the Newtown area. Burke's murder was followed by the murder of standover man Robert Jackie Steele on the 26th of November 1965. It was alleged that Steele was shot by Lenny McPherson after Steele called McPherson a grass after reading an article in the magazine Oz about McPherson naming him as a fizz gig and informer. Steele spent a month in hospital before dying of his injuries. 1967 was marked by more violent and brazen public murders. On the 15th of July 1967, for example, brothel owner Barry Big Flock was shot to death in the grounds of the Scottish Hotel in Paddington. A month after Flock's murder on the 7th of February 1967, Melbourne gunman James Mad Dog Sheridan was shot in the head and dumped in a laneway in the Darling Harbour area. Two months after Sheridan's murder on the 22nd of April 1967, King's Cross casino owner Claude Eldridge was shot to death while walking to his car in neutral Bay. The next public murder occurred on the 28th of May 1967 when 28 year old standover man Raymond Ducky O'Connor was shot to death at the Latin Quarter Club in front of eyewitnesses, including two police detectives. At the time of his murder, O'Connor was on bail for the murder of a Melbourne woman named Shirley Boker, who was hit by a stray round allegedly fired by O'Connor after she was caught in the crosshair of a brawl after a junior VFL game in Richmond on the 1st of May 1967. It was alleged that O'Connor's murder was committed by Lenny McPherson after learning that O'Connor was running a rival protection racket and that McPherson also visited O'Connor while he was in prison and threatened him. It was speculated that in early hours of the 28th of May, O'Connor went to Latin Quarter on Pitt Street where he was relieved of his firearm by criminal branch CIB detectives Maury Wilde and Jack Whalen before sitting in with the two detectives at a table. McPherson approached the detective's table and shot O'Connor twice, killing him. Lenny's information was so valuable to police that in 1967 he got away with murdering a man right in front of two cops. The victim was a hitman, Raymond Ducky O'Connor, he'd been feuding with. He asked O'Connor to meet him in the Latin Quarter nightclub to discuss a truce. McPherson, my understanding is, was unarmed. But his henchmen weren't. The lights went out for no more than a minute. Suddenly, shots rang out. And of course, Ducky O'Connor was found on the floor dead. Uh, you know, some would say it was, uh, was murder, uh, foul play. Um, I really believe it was probably justifiable homicide. Uh, would be the best description to cover it and, and no one was ever charged over it. O'Connor's wife, Grace the Case O'Connor, was a member of the UK-based Australian shoplifting gang known as the Kangaroo Gang that were known for carrying out thefts and robberies of high-end department stores, jewellery stores and banks throughout the UK and Europe. In 1974, Grace O'Connor disappeared from the home that she and fellow kangaroo gang member Tommy Wraith shared on Seymour Grove in Paddington. Her body was never found. It was believed that Tommy and Grace got into a confrontation in which Tommy strangled Grace. It was suspected that after killing Grace, Tommy and an unknown accomplice placed her body in the boot of Wraith's rented car and allegedly drove to an unknown location in Hertfordshire where they dumped O'Connor's body in a shallow grave. 
Nearly a month after Ducky O'Connor's murder on the 26th of June 1967, 58-year-old casino boss Richard Riley was shot twice with a shotgun as he was walking to his parked car outside his mistress's apartment in Double Bay. Despite being wounded, Riley managed to get into the car and drove a few hundred metres before lapsing into unconsciousness and crashing the vehicle into the window of a shop. It was alleged that the shooter was rival Baccarat operator and standover man Johnny Warren, who was also named as the shooter in Eldridge's murder. In January 1968, believing his mistress Gloria McGlynn was committing infidelity, Warren went to her apartment in Brighton Lee Sands, where he shot and killed McGlynn, McGlynn's suspected lover, and McGlynn's mother, before shooting himself in the head. The final public murder took place on the morning of the 28th of May 1968, where brothel owner Joe Borg was killed by a bomb placed under the driver's seat of his car in Bondi. By the 1970s, criminal figures under pressure from their associates within the police began making rival criminals disappear more discreetly by luring or kidnapping them, in some cases murdering them at a secret location and either dumping their bodies or throwing them overboard while still alive in the waters of Sydney. The genesis of the Sydney gangland war was the growing heroin trade in New South Wales during the 1970s. The period saw the heroin trade explode throughout Sydney, mainly imported from Southeast Asia. The catalyst for the gangland war was believed to be the arrest of New Zealand drug trafficker and member of the Mr Asia drug syndicate's Terry Clark by police in London for the murder of Clark's associate and head of the Mr Asia drug syndicate Marty Johnston, who was shot on Clark's orders on the 9th of October 1979. During the mid-1970s, Clark ran a heroin importation ring between Singapore and Sydney with the aid of Griffith Basin and Ragatha member Robert Tromboli. Clark, along with four other members of the syndicate, were convicted of Johnson's murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Clark died of a heart attack while serving his sentence in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight in 1983, although it was suspected that he was actually murdered. Tromboli fled Australia in 1981 after hearing about his pending arrest for his involvement in the 1977 disappearance of anti-drug campaigner Donald Mackay, which I will cover in another podcast episode. Tromboli fled to the US, then to France, before being arrested in Ireland. After being released by the Irish courts, Tromboli fled to Spain, where he died of cancer in a Spanish hotel on the 12th of May, 1987. Now we get to the groups and factions involved in the Sydney gangland war. At the time of the Sydney Gangland War, there were three major criminal groups locked in battle for control of the Sydney underworld and the drug trade. First, we have the Freeman McPherson Group. Led by Lenny McPherson and George Freeman, both who I will do a commentary podcast on in another episode, and also Stan the Man Smith as well. Considered as the old school criminal group in the Sydney underworld, the McPherson Freeman Group ran Sydney's illegal gambling, nightclub and vice trade since the late 1950s and early 1960s. Frederick Paddles Anderson, Stan the Man Smith, and Melbourne hitman Chris Flannery, who I'll also do an episode on in a later podcast episode, were reportedly part of this group. When I was at the gaming squad, uh, you know, we... We used, to, we used to watch Freeman go around the casinos, following around the casinos of a night, and he was collecting money, putting it in his boot. Um, he used to drive at incredible speeds, and we used to say to ourselves, you know, we'd be better off locking him up for driving in a speed dangerous to the public because at least we'll get a result, rather than try and bash our heads up against a brick wall and have him arrested for his involvement in organised crime. And, uh, and I remember one particular night... Um, we were tapping Stan Smith's telephone. We had Freeman's phone off, we had Lenny McPherson's phone off, and we had uh, Stan Smith's phone off. And Smith, they, they were talking about getting... These were in the days when 
people like George Walker, uh, Perce Galea and Bruce Galea, were running illegal casinos in Sydney, but they were all independent of one another, like uh, Walker had the Goulburn Club in 33 Goulburn Street, um, Galea had the Forbes Club, there was the Palace, which someone else operated, and there was a number of big illegal games going on, but they weren't, they weren't part of any organisation. So Smith, McPherson and Freeman, and, and McPherson was sort of, he was known as a bit of an enforcer, a collector, standover man, and they used to use him to collect debts and things like that, and, and he was a big guy, a big heavy set thug, uh, one of the old-time crooks, uh, generally very reliable, and um, I remember a story, when I reg arrested a guy called Reg Andrews who uh, had a casino years ago at King's Cross, and he told me about when he first recruited McPherson to drive him home overnight because he used to take large amounts of money home. And he took uh, McPherson down to the Menangle Trots one day because um, they had a couple of trotters that they um, had put a fair bit of money on. And he said Lenny didn't know anything about racing in those days. He said and when they got there, he said, what do you want to do, Len? And he said, I'll just go for a walk. And he said, while well, you blokes do your business. And when, when they got in the car at the end of the day, Lenny said to them, how'd you go? And they said, oh, we lost our money. The horse, um, the horse that we put all the money on got beat. And McPherson said, oh, you should have told me. He said, I could have got over the other side of the course and shot, shot the horse that was, looked like winning. He said, and then you would have won your money. Like, but that was, that, that's the sort of guy Lenny was. He was a real character. And I got to know him well when he was a registered informant of mine at the National Crime Authority. He's a fascinating guy. Obviously been involved in a whole host of things throughout his life. And and when he was in jail, I actually gave him an opportunity uh, to come forward and um, in a closed hearing and disclose his involvement and his knowledge of, of um, cri unsolved crimes in return for in return for protection by the uh, federal government. And he thought about it. At the end of the day, he refused it, and he died in jail. So that was Lenny's decision. Wow. Yeah, that was pretty heavy stuff. And. Um, but getting back to Freeman, Smith and, and McPherson, they, and, and this was Smith's idea, Smith was a, an absolute organiser, it was his idea to put together this scheme whereby they would unite all the illegal games, each of them would have to pay a given amount for protection each week and that money would go to the police and the politicians and they talked about it freely over the telephone. And uh, even to the point where Smith visited these places and he knew how many clients they had, what nights they were operating, how much money they were taking, so that when they approached them, they couldn't turn around and say, hang on, we, we can't afford that sort of money. So when they approached these people, they more or less said, OK. Um, there was a guy called Mick Kirby out at Sutherland that had a game at Waratah Street, and they, and they contacted him on the telephone and said, we want two and a half grand off you each week. And he said, I'm not even making that much each week. And they said, yes, you are. We know how much you're making a week and two and a half grand's only a small proportion of what your take is. And he said, oh, look, I'll just close the place down and go back to what I was doing before, which was SP betting. They said, if you close the place down, you go back to nothing. You, you won't operate. So eventually he agreed to pay the two and a half grand a week. But they met all these illegal operators at the old Four Seas restaurant in Elizabeth Street, Sydney, which was a Chinese restaurant, and, and a, um, it, it was a a meeting place for a lot of crooks in those days. They'd sit there over a meal and talk about their crime and everything else. Now, Stan Smith prepared a tape, and uh, he wanted Freeman, who was going to the meeting, Freeman didn't want Stan to go with him, because Stan used to get a bit carried away. He got really excited. But 
Stan prepared this tape and he wanted George to play it to these operators if they didn't go along with it. And, and I remember, oh God, I wish I still had that tape, but uh, I remember one of the things he said in it and it was, um, it was virtually addressing all these casino operators and saying, um, you people are only prepared to pay pennies when many, many pounds are involved. And you're talking about coppers that you've got sweet, which means that you've got a copper who's prepared to take money, and you're talking about politicians, and that's hard cash. So what he's saying to them is you've got to pay big if you want this protection. And George actually met all these casino operators at the Four Seas restaurant. We waited for him to leave the meeting. He had a, he had a meeting with Stan Smith uh, just on the other side of Elizabeth Street. And uh, more or less, we assume, he told Stan everything went well, they've all agreed to it, you know, we've got everything in place. And as Stan walked away from that meeting to go back to his car, Freeman had handed him the tape back and told him he didn't need to use the tape. Stan pulled all the tape out of the actual cassette. He couldn't rip it. He ripped some of it, but it's hard to rip uh, recording tape. He ripped some of it, but mostly he just pulled out of the cassette and he dumped it in the garbage bin. Well, we retrieved it and put it back together, and that's how we had the tape. So it really, it was a great insight into how these people's minds operated and what they were trying to do at that particular point in time. But the great problem for, for us was that we still had a corrupt commissioner in, in the police and, and it was, we, we had no one to go to. And, and it, was, it was that sort of frustration which led to the leaking of the age tapes to try and get something done about it because nothing was ever going to happen from within policing whilst you had people in charge that were protecting these, these individuals. It was around this time the mentor-protégé relationship between Lenny and Stan began to change. This was picked up on phone taps, monitored by former New South Wales Assistant Police Commissioner Jeff Schuberg. And they started off just talking quite normally and they used to converse two or three times a day. And he was telling McPherson about, uh, about the problem he's been having with his Colin. And Lenny was telling him about how he'd make a point every morning of getting up and having a shit before I do anything else through the day. Stan agrees with him and says, yeah, it's important to have a fucking shit every day to clean your colon out. And then, and then Lenny said something along the lines of, yeah, look, that's right, Stan. He said, Stan? He said, you call me Stan on the phone. How many times have I got to fucking tell you, you fucking dog, you imbecile? Don't call me that on the telephone. And he slammed the phone down. Because we're sitting back listening to this conversation, pissing ourselves, laughing, you know, it was, it was just so funny. And it gave you an insight into, into these two individuals. After about five minutes, Stan rings Lenny back. Listen, I'm sorry, mate. Sorry about the way I spoke to you. That's okay, Stan. There you fucking go again, you fucking idiot. You fucking imbecile, you stupid cunt. Bang, the phone would go down again. This took place on a daily basis. Stan would have regular conversations with Lenny. Stan didn't have a lot of conversations with George. Most of the information went through Lenny to George. And I think the reason for that was that George Freeman was paranoid about this reputation that Stan had for his involvement in drugs. First, we'll start off with who Leonard Arthur McPherson was. 
Leonard Arthur McPherson, born in Balmain, New South Wales on May 19th of 1921, died in Cessnock, New South Wales on the 28th of August 1996, was one of the most notorious and powerful Australian career criminals of the late 20th century. McPherson is believed to have controlled most of Sydney's organised crime activity for several decades, alongside his contemporary Abe Saffron, who was dubbed Mr Sin, who I will do a podcast episode on as well, and associate bookmaker George Freeman. We, um... We went out and searched Lenny McPherson's place, and um, we we weren't real sure what what we expected to find. Uh, he had a huge safe in the place, which he willingly opened up for us. But when we got there, he uh, he met us at the front door. He lived out at Gladesville in Prince Edward Park Road. He had he was a fascinating guy. He had bulletproof glass even on his wire screen door at the front. It was there was wire there, but there was bulletproof glass behind it, so. It really wasn't a, a fly screen as such, um, but he, 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 we went in and everything was fine. I, I told him why we were there. I said we were searching uh, for any documentation or whatever that uh, might be of assistance to the National Crime Authority. We had a proper warrant and everything else. He was quite cooperative, but when we met him at the door, he was actually on the telephone at the time, and he said, I'll "Just hang up." He went to this call, and, and all I heard him say was, um, "Yep, yeah, no, I've got visitors." Yeah, right, hung up. And I thought, he's just told someone that the coppers are here. He was talking to Freeman, actually. And then Freeman's rung Chris Murphy. And while we were at the premises, Chris Murphy's arrived. And he come in like a Bondi tram, 100 mile an hour. You're not to talk to my client unless I'm present, you know. Um, don't do this, don't do that, don't touch this, don't do that. And I had a go at him. I, I, I virtually told him to fuck off and keep out of our way. And uh, as soon as I did it, I thought, oh, you silly bugger, he's obviously got a tape recorder on him, you know, and you'll probably make a complaint about the way that I've spoken to him. And I thought, I don't really need that sort of thing. But McPherson turned around to him and he said, listen, Chris, he said, go up the backyard and sit down. He said, they're not causing me any aggravation. And he said, uh, just keep your nose out of it. I'll talk to you when I'm finished. And Murphy, like a little kid, had to sort of go up and sit down and keep out of it. So that was Lenny. And, and, and he, I think he appreciated the way that we treated him and, and handled the thing on that particular night. We, we seized a lot of stuff, which they went through at the National Crime Authority. There was really nothing there that was going to tie him in with anything. But at the time, he was petrified about the fact that um, his life was under threat from was going to kill him. And he got back to me and he just said, look, I'd like to have a talk to you. So uh, the, the deal at the National Crime Authority, where everything was sort of done by the book, um, was that I had to register him as an informant. Uh, Don Stewart knew that. A lot of other people didn't. And during the time that McPherson was an informant of mine, uh, people had made allegations about an improper association I was having with Lenny McPherson. And Stewart stood by me 100%. He even spoke to politicians, because they fed it to the politicians. And, and Don Stewart even spoke to them and said, just keep your nose out of it. I know what Schuberg's doing every minute of the day. And he's certainly you know, not doing anything improper. But I saw McPherson fairly regularly, and he, he did give us a lot of good information, there's no doubt about that, but would never involve himself in anything. He would never go so far as to say, well, I actually did this or did that. He talked a lot about people like, uh, not so much Ray Kelly, but Fred Cray, and the fact that Cray was continually trying to blame him for every crime that was ever committed in Sydney. And, and there's no doubt that the guy had so much information 
um, to give, and that's what I wanted from him. I wanted to get him in a position where we could offer him something to get him to sit down and tell all, um, and unfortunately, uh, it, it just never happened. He did give us a lot. Um, he'd feed little bits and pieces to us, and I used to see him fairly regularly. If anything happened, um, I could go and talk to him, and he'd find out things for me which we could use. Uh, so he was, he, he, was, he was quite valuable to the National Crime Authority. Like before Lenny McPherson died, he, uh, he, he confided in me that he had given Flannery three guns. Um, he didn't know what Flannery wanted the guns for, but um, after Flannery got the guns, Michael Drury was shot in the kitchen of his home over on the north side, and Flannery returned two of those guns to McPherson. And shortly after that, Flannery disappeared. And my, my take on that is that um, Flannery, like Stuart John Regan years ago, was an uncontrollable criminal. And uh, th there was just a cleansing process that took place. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. His wife blamed police for involvement in it. I don't think that's true. I think uh, the people involved in organised crime in, in Sydney just saw him as a wild card and he disappeared. Where? I've got no idea. Now we get into McPherson's reputation. Universally feared by adversaries and often referred to as Sydney's Mr. Big of organised crime, McPherson built up an extensive network of criminal activities that included robbery, theft and extortion rackets, illegal gambling, sly grog shops or illegal alcohol outlets, prostitution and drug dealing, and his influence is also believed to have extended to Southeast Asia and the United States. McPherson's well-earned reputation for extreme brutality is exemplified by an incident recounted in Tony Reeves' 2005 biography on McPherson. McPherson had been estranged from his mother for many years, but on his 70th birthday, he unexpectedly turned up at her flat carrying a live rabbit. He demanded to know why he had not been invited to a birthday party, and when she admitted that it was because of his criminal activities, the furious McPherson tore the rabbit's head off, threw the still twitching body at her feet, and stormed off. Re Lenny McPherson was the black sheep of the family. I think he felt that particularly. And when his mother organised her 70th birthday and didn't invite him, he felt even further isolated from his own clan. You turn seven, you throw a party, and you don't invite your baby boy. What the fuck's that all about? She was unhappy and disappointed with, uh, with her son. You were just a common thief. I can understand stealing, but the moles and the bashings. Who have you been talking to? And in Lenny's dark view of the world, he would have sought retribution. He would have sought to get back at those people who had harmed him. In this case, his mother. Well, fuck you then! <laughs> we could go into the Oedipal implications of it all, but really, it was a a sadistic act. It was designed to make her feel as bad as possible about what she had done to him or what he perceived she had done to him. His mother did to him what most boys find is a very difficult thing. My elderly mother, who professes to love and care for me, who gave birth to me, says to me, I'm disappointed in you. Not only disappointed, you're not welcome at our function. And because he couldn't reach out and strangle his own mother, he did the next best thing, he broke the rabbit's neck, and in throwing the rabbit with the broken neck back at the mother said, that warm child I used to be is no longer the warm child I currently am. 
Happy birthday, you old bitch! So, for McPherson to violate his own mother's birthday space with an act of absolute... toxicity, with the implication that I'll break the rabbit's neck and I could do that to you, means that he has no sense of, of real love for his mother or compassion she was just a figurehead. He wanted to have power over her. And by her not inviting him to the party, he was a vicious and savagely needing to have his revenge on her. Next on Unanswered Questions, McPherson savagely brutalised his first wife on numerous occasions. One time he came home, dinner wasn't on the table, and he shot up the whole kitchen, include, including the food cooking on the stove. <laughs> 